So, yeah, this is um, number four in Daniel. Um, so, uh, if, you, if you've not been here for the other ones, uh, basically, the book of Daniel um, happens during the exile, um, a period in history called the exile, when the Israelite people, who are God's uh, chosen people, um, were taken out of, of the promised land, um, the, the land that God had promised them, and, and put into Babylon, um, where the king was Nebuchadnezzar. So they're not, in the, they're not in the promised land anymore. Um, they've not got a temple anymore. And that's been destroyed. Um, and yeah, the temple was where God was for them. Um, that, that was their sort of symbol um, that God was with them. Um, so yeah, so they, they were kind of thinking, where, where is God? You know, is, he, is he really still with us? Um, so that's the sort of context that Daniel's written in. Uh, and so far, we, we looked at chapter 1, um, and we saw that um, Daniel and some of his friends um, decided that they weren't going to eat the Babylonian food, and they made a stand on that. Um, and then in chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue that Daniel interpreted uh, with God's help. Um, and it, it meant that um, Babylon was just going to be one of like a, a string of different kingdoms that would come along, um, that would all sort of be... Um, you know, they would come and go, um, but that God's kingdom was uh, an everlasting one. Um, so in chapter 3, uh, we've got another statue um, and another sort of stand by, by Daniel's friends. And I want to look at the passage in three uh, sort of sections. Um, so verses 1 to 7, um, we'll look at a powerful king. Uh, and then verses 8 to 18, I've called um, a defiant trio. And finally, verses 19 to 30, an almighty God. Um, so, yeah, let's get into it. Um, verses 1 to 7, a powerful king. Um, so, so Nebuchadnezzar's had this big statue made. So it's 90 foot high, um, which I worked out is about the height of four houses stacked on top of each other. Um, probably a bit more secure, if you include the roofs. Um, so, so, yeah, I think... Um, uh, basically, this this sort of bit is, is trying to say, Nebuchadnezzar, he's he's a powerful guy, he's a powerful king. People listen to him, and do things. So we've got we've got the statue, and it's on a it says it's on on a plane, um, and this word apparently means like a flat piece of land, um, quite a big flat piece piece of land with sort of mountains around it, so everyone could see it. It's not like hidden away somewhere; everyone could see this statue. Uh, we're not really told what its purpose was. Um, it could just be that Nebuchadnezzar has got a bit of a, a big head after his dream. In the dream it said that there was a head of gold um, and that was I think I've got a picture. Yeah, that was the, the statue. Um, so the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. So he's thinking, yeah actually I, I'm pretty good. I'm gold. All these kingdoms that come after me, they're like silver and bronze but I, I'm gold. I'm, I'm pretty good. So it could be that. Um, or it could just be an attempt by him to unite all the people together. Um, they've got Babylonians and Jews and presumably loads of other different nations that they've like, taken over. So Babylon was a, a really powerful nation. Uh, and he wants to, they're all coming with the different religions and customs and things and maybe he just wants to sort of unite them together. Um, but well, whatever it is, um, whatever the, the purpose is, for this statue, 
does, it, it leaves you no doubt who's in charge here. Um, and, then, and then he has a, a dedication ceremony for the statue. Um, so I think, I think we, we like to have dedication ceremonies, don't we? If, like new buildings or if there's a new ward on the hospital or like a statue, we like to have a, a dedication ceremony um, for it. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dedication ceremony for his statue and everyone who's anyone is there. It's sort of like a big party. Uh, and you've got the Queen and MPs and the Lords and Ladies and uh, Mayors and councillors from all over the country all dressed in their, their fancy gear, um, this, this big party. Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's, like, there's quite a bit of repetition in there. Um, there's this list of who's there, which is, yeah, just basically all those sort of people I've said, all of the different rulers um, at different levels. And I think, like, repeating things like this in, in any kind of literature, really, means it's sort of a big sound person, this thing is important. So just sort of listen to it. Um, and I think, that, I think the point is um, that when Nebuchadnezzar says something, people do it. So it says, uh, he then summoned all of these different people to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And it says, Sir, all of these people, the same list of people repeated, they all assembled for the dedication of the image he had set up. Nebuchadnezzar summoned and the people assembled. When the powerful king says something, you do it. And I think um, that point's drummed home further in the next few verses uh, with a message from the king's herald. So if you have a look down at uh, verses 5 and 7, um, so if you, if you haven't got your Bibles open, page 886, um, it's really helpful, by the way, for you to have it open while I'm preaching, because um, it means that you can check that what I'm saying is, is right. Um, so verses uh, 5 and 7, um, we've, got, we've got loads more repetition. Uh, we're told the people who are to obey this command are peoples, nations, and men of every language, in verse 5. And then in verse 7, it tells us that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language obey the command. And we're told that the command is to fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And what do the people do? Verse 7, they fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Um, and did you notice the, the cue to bow down as well? This long list of instruments is big, um, orchestra, um, which m- must have been uh, a massive, massive noise. Um, the, the list of instruments is almost exactly the same. Um, there's, there's some pipes missing from verse 7. I don't know why, but I, yeah, I think the message is exactly the same as what we saw a minute ago. You just, you just don't mess with Nebuchadnezzar. You do exactly what he says when he says it. He's got power over all these people. Um, and the reason is, um, the reason they do exactly what he says when he says it is because they've got the threat of death if they don't. Notice the therefore that starts, verse 7. So because Nebuchadnezzar gave the threat of certain death um, in, in a blazing furnace to those who didn't do what he said, people did what he said. Or fear for their lives, they did exactly what he said. 
And I think, um, I think fear can be a motivator for us today as well, can't it? I mean, we'd have a king that's threatening to kill us, um, but we can face the prospect of scorn and ridicule and uh, maybe humiliation if we don't live in the way that the world sort of expects us to. We, we sort of long for acceptance from people and we want people to like us, so we can be scared of doing things that might jeopardise that. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this point a bit later, but I just want you to be thinking, uh, what, what is it for me that, that I fear doing or not doing? Um, our fear, our fear of what, my people, what, uh, what people might say to me or, or do to me. I'll just give you a few seconds to kind of think about that. <laughs> Okay, so let's, let's move on to the next section. And I've called it a defiant trio. I think that's the right word. Trio for three people, verses 8 to 18. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's got this new statue, which everyone's bowing down to, except not quite everyone. Uh, there's, there's three people who don't do it. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, we've met them before in Daniel. Uh, they were Daniel's friends in chapter 1 who sort of made a stand with him and didn't eat uh, the, the Babylonian food. Um, so we already know that they're sort of they're, they're godly guys. They believe in God, they trust in him, they want to obey him. So it's not too much of a surprise um, that we encounter them now, refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Um, it's actually pointed out by the astrologers which is slightly surprising because we, we've met them before as well in chapter 1. They were the ones whose necks were on the line because they couldn't interpret the king's dream. And Daniel, another one of the Jews, come, came in and interpreted the dream and they were sort of all saved from the shop. Um, but, it, yeah, they, they don't seem to be very grateful for that at all. And they, they come and sort of tell on um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the Tyler king, maybe it's like to get back in his good books or something like that. But yeah, I think this is just one of the greatest displays of faith in the whole Bible and from these three people. Faced with the threat of death from a powerful king who is well known for his, kind of, his anger and his rage and for doing what he says he's going to do. They just reject this second chance that the king gives them. Um, and we've got that sort of repetition again of the list of instruments, of the command, and of the punishment. Um, this is actually going to happen. If they don't do what he says, if they don't bow, they're in for it. So death's staring them in the face. It's not a distant threat anymore. It's not, it's not just words, it's actually real. They can, pro- they can probably see the fairness there. They can see the flames. And you could probably forgive them for at this point, sort of, going, oh, actually, yeah, okay, okay, we'll do it. We can, we can see it there. We can see you mean what you say. So we're going to bow down. Um, last summer, I was helping out on a, on a kid's camp. Um, and one day, we were going to go rock sailing, uh, rock sailing, rock climbing and ab sailing. <laughs> um, not rock sailing and ab climbing. Uh, rock climbing and ab sailing. I had done rock climbing before, so that was fine. I was thinking, ab sailing, yeah, ab, it doesn't seem that bad. You know, I, I can do it. We got there, watched a few people go up and down, 
looks a little bit more scary, but not too bad. Got up there and sort of was stood there on the edge of the rock, looking down and thinking, what am I doing here? This is crazy. I've got to sort of, you know, put my, put my faith in this, this rope and this instructor that I don't know. So I hold my weight as I'm going down. Everything's, it's, it's just, when you're there in the situation, it's, it's a lot more real and a lot more scary, isn't it? So I think you could sort of forgive um, these three for, at this point, going, okay, you know, we'll do what you say. Um, but they don't, they, stand, they still stand firm. Um, they still refuse to bow down. But why? Why is it that they don't bow down? Like, surely they could just bow down and not really mean it. You know, not really mean it in the hearts. The bowing down, but, re- you know, we don't believe that, but we'll do it just, just to sort of appease the king. And, you know, God, God's going to be okay with that, isn't he? And, like, notice what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't require of them. He doesn't want them to give up their, their beliefs. He just wants them to add to it with this idol. He's not asking them to stop worshipping God. He's saying, worship God, yep, that's fine. But worship this idol as well. So, is it really that bad? Is it really worth dying for? Well, obviously, these three guys think so. Um, And I've got two reasons um, that I think we can sort of draw from the passage of why, why they do this. The first one is, they're servants of the one true God, the God of Israel, the God's special chosen people who are to be completely separate from the other nations. They're set aside for him and they're not to be like mingled in with all the pagan people. So to bow down to the, to the king's idol would, to become, um, would be to become the same as, as all of these pagans. They'd, sort of, they'd lose their distinctiveness. They wouldn't be like set aside for God anymore. They'd become mingled in. The world around them had multiple gods, what you might call a pantheon of gods. But Israel was different. They were completely different. They, they just had one God, the one true God, and they were supposed to serve him wholeheartedly. Um, and that, I don't think it just means, one God doesn't just mean like one heavenly being that they believe in, but instead it means one thing that they value above everything else. Can you see that? They put a value on being faithful to God that is higher than that of their own life. Um, Jesus told a parable, uh, I think it was in Matthew's Gospel, um, about a man who found a treasure in a field. And it was so valuable that he went away and sold absolutely everything they had um, so that he could buy this field and get this treasure. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like that, and therefore God himself is like that. He is so valuable so valuable that it is more valuable than anything else even your own life so, um, so for, for these guys to want to give up everything for God is not an overreaction in the slightest 
they yeah they considered God of such such high value, and that they were willing to give up their lives and to be thrown into the furnace. So I just want to ask: is that is that your attitude? Do you realise how valuable God is, and do you do you serve Him accordingly? Uh, are you are you willing to give up give up pride, give up face, um, as as we call it? to sort of go through ridicule and mocking and scorn maybe from people um, because of your faith in God um, and because of, because of the way that you choose to live your life and um, to, to live a godly way instead of the way that the world wants us to live. So, so that's reason number one um, why these three are able to refuse um, Nebuchadnezzar's command. The second reason is they trust in God to deal with the consequences of their actions. It says, The God we serve is able to save us from the furnace and he will rescue us from your hand. So they're confident that if God wants to, he can save them from the furnace. And I think the wording um, is quite important here. It says, He will rescue us from your hand. Uh, we talked a bit about power, about the king being powerful. Um, Nebuchadnezzar actually asked them, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The hand is sort of a, a symbol of like power. So Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no one can rescue you from my, from my hand, from my power, because I'm more powerful. No one's more powerful than me. And they're saying, actually, God is more powerful than you. He is able to rescue um, us from your hand. Um, and I, I'll just, I just love the next bit um, verse, verse uh, 18 um, it says but even if he does not even if God does not rescue us from your hand we want you to know King that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you've set up they're not necessarily relying on God to save them from the fairness but they're relying on him to deal with the consequences of, of their um, act of, of faith, of living in a godly way, um, when, it, when it's hard. And I think they can only say this if they know there's something better waiting on the other side. It's like, um, to, um, imagine you're travelling back home one day, you've been, on, you know, you've been out somewhere, a bit of a journey, you're a few miles from home and you pass by a McDonald's, seems to happen quite regularly in our house um, but if, yeah, if you're going back to an empty house and there's, there's no food there you probably are going to stop in McDonald's and get something to eat but imagine you've been promised by you know, your parents or uh, your partner or whatever that when you get home you can have a big roast dinner on the table you're probably not going to go into McDonald's um, on, on the way are you when you're a few miles from home it's, it's a bit of a daft illustration but I hope you get the point that the reason um, these guys are going to put their life at risk is because there's something better waiting for them, sort of further down the line in the future. Even if they are um, killed um, by Nebuchadnezzar. And I think uh, there's almost certainly going to be consequences for us when we choose to live in a godly way. Instead of the way the world expects us, and 
that doesn't mean that we should forget about living in God's way. It means that we should live in, uh, in God's way um, and trust him and to deal with the consequences. We don't need to stop off for McDonald's because we've got a big rest dinner waiting for us uh, when we get to heaven. Okay, so let's, let's come to the, the end of our story. It seems like that's it. It's over for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, the, the king said, this is going to happen. You're going to be thrown into the furnace if you don't bow down. If they haven't bowed down, there's only going to be one outcome in there. And I think there's sort of a series of things that we read which show just how impossible the situation seems. So firstly, Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. Not just turn it up a few degrees, seven times hotter than normal. Uh, secondly, it's the king's strongest soldiers, it says, um, who, who come for them. There's no, there's no getting away, there's no escape at this point. Thirdly, uh, it says they're bound, they're, they're firmly tied, uh, I think it reads. And, and finally, even the soldiers who took them to the edge of the furnace get killed um, by it. So the story could quite easily end there. They fall into the furnace and that's it. It's over. Uh, But as we know, um, we did read the end of the story and that doesn't happen. Um, God's got other ideas. It's a bit like an action movie where you think someone's someone's in for it. This is it for them. Until the very last second and someone comes along or something happens and they just manage to escape. Uh, by the skin of the teeth. It seems to happen every time, doesn't it? Um, and you're so, you're so surprised when it happens, even though you know it's coming. But this is like, it, it's even after the last second. It's after they've been thrown in. They're not, they're not saved from being thrown into the furnace. But after they're thrown in, the king suddenly jumps up and he realises that there's people walking around in the fire. It seems like these people that have just been thrown in have survived being thrown into a fire. I think um, when we've heard stories like this, like if we've read them a few times and we're sort of used to them and you know being brought up with them, we can sort of forget. We, we can sort of become desensitised to them in a way. Like it, it doesn't seem that amazing, but like yeah, just just stop and think about it for a minute. This is incredible, like a a big fire, and these people are just walking around in the fire. And that's that's not all. There's another person there with them. There's a heavenly being, it seems. Uh, We're not told exactly who it is. Um, Some people think um, it could be Jesus, um, what uh, theologians might call a a theophany, Um, so Jesus sort of appearing um, before, or, well, uh, the son appearing before he was born. Um, and others just say it's an angel, but whatever it is, God's um, made sure that they're cared for in that furnace. And again, that, that's not all. When they come out of the furnace, they're absolutely unharmed. There's not, it says it's not a hair singed 
not a piece of clothing burnt. They don't even smell like they've been in a fire or, or near a fire. Like on, on, um, on bonfire night, um, we, we had a big fire and things, things tend to smell of fire for you know, a few days afterwards. There was no smell of fire on them even. That's how much God protected them. So the, the confidence that they had um, in God's ability to rescue them uh, wasn't misplaced. Uh, he did rescue them. And he's, yeah, he's just an awesome, uh, almighty, powerful God who deserves their worship and deserves ours. And, uh, and God even gets worship from the king. If we read on to chapter 4, we'll realise that, um, that actually the, the king hasn't, he's not sort of been converted, as it were, yet. Um, he still sort of worships other gods, but he suddenly realises that there is a God who is more powerful than him. And, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those times where you just have to go, wow, this is amazing. What a, what a great God. Now, I, I don't think this is, a, well, I, this isn't a blueprint of, um, of what's sort of always going to happen to God's people. He's not going to rescue us from all the pain and all the death um, that, that we see and that we feel in this life. Um, but it's, it's just one of those times where you get a window into the next world, um, into the future, into heaven, um, where, where we see sort of what it's going to be like, uh, where there's, there's no pain and there's no death. Because God will ultimately rescue us from death. And not, not physical death. Um, he'll rescue us if we trust in him. Uh, from spiritual death. The Bible says that, that we are dead in our sin. We're dead uh, to God because uh, we've rebelled against him. And we're, we're alienated from him and we're distant from him. We can't, we can't come near him. And, we, uh, and when we die, um, we'll be separated from all the, all the goodness that comes from God. But Jesus, God's own son, lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross, the death that we deserved. And so, um, and so he defeated death. So, actually, what, whatever the world threatens us with, we're able to keep worshipping God, keep serving him and keep obeying his commands. Because not even death itself is a threat anymore. There's no reason for us to, to fear anything. So I, I just want to encourage you to, to consider um, this great God that we serve and think about the things that um, you might value uh, more than God. And uh, as we sort of live together as, as Christian brothers and sisters, as a, a sort of family, um, we need to be uh, challenging each other when we notice that, that we're not putting God first, when we've started putting other things ahead of God. Like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they didn't, they didn't do this on their own. They did it together as a, as a family. And they were, they were supporting each other through this. And, uh, 
Yeah, and in that same vein, I think it's really important for us not just to be challenging each other, but to be encouraging each other. Um, as uh, yeah, with with this brilliant, amazing, liberating truth uh, that the consequences of our actions are down to God, and that we 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 don't need to fear what other people think. We don't need to fear on uh, fear fear about missing out on. Uh, you know, people people might say uh, you miss out on um, on life if you if you live God's way instead of the world's way. We don't need to fear that. Um, we're, instead, we're, we're just free um, to serve God wholeheartedly. And finally, just uh, just remember that God has rescued you from death. The worst thing that the world can threaten us with is death. But we have been rescued already from that. So there's absolutely nothing to fear.